You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. If you would, please open your Bibles to John chapter 6, starting in verse 52. The Gospel of John, the 6th chapter, starting in the 52nd verse, and we're going to complete John chapter 6. So we are picking back up in the sermon series, Life in His Name, which is the thesis of the book of John. I do appreciate your, you guys um, these last couple weeks being with us um, as we worked through 1 Corinthians. Uh, a couple Sundays ago was a blessing uh, in disguise as we just got to read the Word. And then uh, this last week, just a reminder of, hey, Let's start on our uh, unity, on where we agree in the things of the gospel, and let's work out from there. Let's do something the world is not doing right now, and let's pull together, and let's pull together tightly. So it's good to come back into the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a beautiful, exciting, and I would even say just encouraging book. I love the way he writes. And so John 6, 52-71 The newspaper, The Atlantic, ran an article in January of this year about Congressman Adam Kinzinger, and it was headlined, Betraying Your Church and Your Party. Betraying Your Church and Your Party. I don't know much about Adam Kissinger, but I found this article fascinating. And it begins with, The letter writer's message was clear, a letter written to Adam. Representative Adam Kissinger is doing the devil's work, and he is possessed by demons. It's not hard to guess why Kissinger would receive such a note. He was one of ten Republican members of Congress who defied their party and voted to impeach President Donald Trump for inciting the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Kissinger knew most Republicans in his solidly conservative district would not agree with him, but the choice was easy. As someone who identifies as a born-again Christian, he believes he has to tell the truth. What has been painful, though, is seeing how many people who share his faith have chosen to support Trump at all costs, fervently declaring that the election was stolen. The person who sent that letter by registered mail to be extra sure that he got it was a member of his own family. And it said this, the devil's ultimate trick for Christianity is embarrassing the church. He told me in a small group of other reporters this week, and I feel it's been successful. I'm not making a case for whether or not his policies or his politics are right, but using this as an illustration of this very hard and difficult thing he had to decide to do in his position. And he goes on to say later on that dissent is costly for Republicans and Christians alike. Kissinger said he's been getting nonstop hate mail since his impeachment vote, calling him a traitor and a R-I-N-O, or Republican in name only. There's a similarity to today's story with Jesus as with this story with Kissinger. The crowd that Jesus has seemed to call in is obsessing over their political situation and looking for God's man for the job. If you remember, he called, or he brought the disciples with him on the other side of the lake in Tiberias, and then 5,000 people showed up looking for their political Messiah, and he would not take it. And so they're looking for God's man for the job, and all the while they're missing Jesus right in front of them. To be about the Father's business is going to be costly for Jesus because it runs against the stream of political and religious expectations of the day. A Messiah takes the throne right now and overtakes Rome and gets our nation back. But Jesus is saying, no, that's not what it is. And so today what we'll see is Jesus' church growth strategy how he goes from being this very popular person, thousands of people following him, to being 
to dwindling down to being completely hated by people and only left with what I would say is a remnant. Jesus had miraculously fed a crowd of 5,000 maybe plus, and in response they wanted to make Him their political Messiah. He slipped out of their midst. He walked across the sea back to Capernaum. They ended up following Him over there, and only hours away, literally hours away from thousands of people wanting to make Him King and Messiah, Jesus then speaks a hard truth about life that takes Him from a fan base of 5,000 down to 11 plus one, that is Judas. Popularity was rising, but that's not because Jesus was playing by the rules. Jesus teaches us to speak the truth about life even when it's hard. To speak the truth about life even when it's hard. And look, this passage today is very difficult. It's very complex. A lot of people, even commentators throughout history, have had some difficulties with this, and it's always a troubling thing. What is mainly going on here? What is Jesus trying to convey here? What is the crux of this? And I've come down to speaking the truth about life, even when it's hard. And so that's where we're going to be today. Speaking the truth about life, even when it's hard. And so for those of you kiddos who are in the room, if you've got your clipboard and pencils and pen, I see some people ready to go, okay? I'm going to have you do some drawing today as well, okay? We'll see how well this goes. I'm really not good on the artist front of instructing kids how to draw, but here we go. So the first thing we're going to see in verses 52 through 59 is that speaking truth about life requires that we press into the discomfort. Speaking truth about life requires that we press into the discomfort. So kids, I want you to draw on the middle of your page, Jesus. Now everybody understand, I'm not having them idolize or worship this image, okay? Just getting a picture of who you think Jesus is and draw Him right in the middle of your paper and then draw around Jesus a bunch of stick figures, a bunch of people, like a big crowd around Jesus, okay? Very simple. Draw Jesus in the middle, draw a big crowd around Him. And then over that crowd, over those, put a bunch of question marks over their heads, okay? Because the crowd is going, hey, what's going on here? What's happening? So those are the question marks, okay? Does that make sense, kids? Yell yes on three if you understand. One, two, three. Okay, good. There we go. I could do that with your parents, too. (laughs) Yeah, it is, baby. Verse 52, let's walk through this together. The Jews then... Jesus just got done talking about him being the bread of life and, you know, feasting on him. And so the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, we'll stop here for a moment, just as the setup here. I get the question, right? If, if we're listening to this in a literal sense, this is weird. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But understand, Jesus is not saying this in a vacuum. He has spoken very clearly in a variety of terms as Himself being the bread of life. He has called the people to believe in Him, to come to Him, to listen to Him, to learn from Him. You see that all in the sixth chapter. And now He's saying, come and eat. And this throws them off. If you remember what Austin Reedy said a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, as he preached the first part of chapter 6, talking about the meaning of bread, he said this, that bread is necessary for life. That bread is suited for everyone. That bread should be eaten daily. And that ultimately, bread produces growth. So this imagery of bread is not lost on the people that Jesus is speaking to. And so the idea of coming and eating is is following up with this same illustration that he's been painting the entire time. He's not saying anything new or different. He's just pressing in on the imagery some more. And so he's calling the crowd to heed the necessity that they must eat ultimately this bread of life. But he uses much stronger language. Eating this flesh. Eating his flesh. 
And so eating in this passage equals believing in Jesus, coming to Jesus, listening to Jesus, learning from Jesus. And so the, the crowd is a little upset. They're sitting here taking Him literal. How can you... Like, are we supposed to be cannibals now? Is that what you're saying? Because that's pretty gross and maybe unlawful. But not only that, these Jews are saying, look, we, we're not even allowed to eat meat, raw meat, that still has blood in it. How can you say that we're supposed to do something so unlawful? And understand, Jesus has been recognized as the lawbreaker already, healing somebody on the Sabbath. So this is just like, this is his rap sheet. Like, you're constantly breaking the law, Jesus. But Jesus shows he's not breaking the law, he's fulfilling it. The problem is the Jews have a misunderstanding of what the law actually is. And so now they're just starting to question, okay, maybe maybe you're really not this guy that we think you are. So Jesus could have backed off and been like, okay, whoa, whoa, I understand you're a little confused here that you think I'm saying that you need to literally eat my flesh. And maybe I need to say it again in some different sort of way. But he doesn't do that. (laughs) He sticks with his guns and he presses in. And so he gives them in verse 53 and 54 really the negative and the positive of what he's saying. And first the negative. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Jesus openly, clearly stating He's the Son of Man. And unless you eat of this, here it is, it's very simple, there is no life in you. No life in you. And then he goes into the positive. Okay, so what happens when we do eat? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus doesn't just go in and give the negative and then just walk out. He gives the unless here, but then he gives the positive. Here's the hope. 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This time of the year, we're looking at the Passover, so he is there teaching, even in the synagogue. Most likely, they're teaching on these passages of the Exodus and the Passover. And so, it wouldn't be that Jesus coming in and talking about him being the bread of life and eating his flesh is completely out of nowhere. It probably fits perfectly with what is being taught. We're also looking at, this is the one year mark, one year from this time, Jesus will die. He will die the next Passover. So from this point on, his reputation, his popularity is not going to be good. And people are really going to start disliking him. So just as Jesus said, I am the bread of life, so he says, eat my flesh. He deepens that imagery to show that not only are folks to believe in Him, but they are to abide in Him and commit all of their lives to Him. Completely ingesting Him, if you will. Let me tell you what this is not saying. There is, in church history, some split on this. You see this in Roman Catholicism as well, that this is talking about communion or the Lord's Supper like we take every week. And that somehow... What Jesus is actually talking about is a literal body and a literal blood that when we take the bread and when we take the wine, it transforms, the substance transforms into the literal body and the literal blood of Jesus as we take it in. It's called transubstantiation. That is, it, the substance transforms in us. And this is really a means to salvation. That teaching, we do not believe. We do not believe at all, and even in the context of this passage, that Jesus is even hinting at the Lord's Supper and how to take it in that sense. 
What Jesus is talking about are things pertaining to salvation, which the Lord's Supper does not save you any more than baptism saves you. But it is a reminder of something greater. So yeah, there is an aspect of today when you see this, it does remind you of the beauty of the Lord's Supper, of His body broken for you, of His blood shed for you. But we're not talking about this in the sense of it saves you and transforms into something inside of you. So we reject that wholly. But eating here is a commitment to Jesus. Union with Christ. We talked about that some weeks ago. Think of union in terms of marriage. Flesh of my flesh. Jesus is saying. I will be one with you. You will be one with me. So whoever eats has eternal life. And I love this. He expounds on this more in the positive than he does in the negative. He who eats has eternal life and abides in Jesus. And Jesus abides in him. The word abide means to continue in an activity or state. So to continue, to remain in, to keep on. So the death of Jesus in His body is the remaining death of the disciple who eats His flesh. Meaning the constant death to sin, the constant payment that Jesus endured on the cross is constantly being applied on those who eat of Him. It's constantly there. It's abiding. It's remaining. It's not going anywhere. And that means then also the blood of Jesus that became the perfect payment for our sin, remains as perfect payment with the disciple who drinks of His blood. That means the wrath of God has been perfectly poured out on Jesus. That means the death He died to sin is now ours forever. And not only that, the payment for our sin has been perfectly paid for and is constantly being applied to our account. Never will we be lacking. And the resurrected life of Jesus then becomes the perfect, glorified life that remains on His disciples. That means eternal life in the now and eternal life to come. That glorified life that Jesus has after the resurrection now remains upon us who are in Christ. And He is the bread of life the bread that came down in the wilderness, that came down to the Israelites, they ate it, but ultimately it was digested and their bodies were hungry again and eventually they died. But Jesus is saying, I'm not that kind of bread. I'm the bread that you eat and I give you life forever. And I will not go back to heaven until I accomplish redemption. Church, are you eating Are you eating? And if you're not eating, I just have to tell you something very straightforward and perhaps harsh. The life of Jesus does not remain on you. This means the life of the Father is absent from you. This means the wrath of God is upon you. This means that you will have to pay for your own sins. There is no glory. There is no hope for you because there is no resurrected life in you or any hope of the resurrected life to come. If you are not feasting upon the bread of life, you will be feasting upon torment for all eternity in hell. It's a harsh reality. Nobody likes to talk about this, but it's true. But if you are eating, if so... Galatians 2.20 paints now what your life is in Christ. When he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That is the life of those who eat on the flesh of Jesus. Your life in Christ will be a difficult one if you are living in obedience to Him. And why? Because the world hates Jesus. The world hates God. Everything about your life 
should be uncomfortable in some regard. Because we live in a fallen world and you are trying to live a perfect, righteous, holy life. And you're constantly going to come into conflict with things that you don't agree with. But you, instead of running, are to press in to the discomfort. But maybe you're going, man, I'm a Christian, but I haven't felt uncomfortable. Well, maybe that's because you're pleasing the crowd. Maybe you're just trying to please the world, please your boss, please your spouse, your kids, your schoolmates, your teachers, your neighbors, all of your lost friends and family. You don't want to ruffle the feathers. You don't want to make anyone upset. You want to keep the peace as much as you can. But you're quiet. You're silent about the true life that Jesus brings. You're silent about it. And you may be pleasing the crowd, but certainly you're not pleasing the Lord. So I want to challenge and encourage you to press in because Jesus abides in you. He remains in you. What more do you need? You can have 5,000 people follow you and like you and want to hear everything you have to say, but that cannot be more satisfying than Christ in you, the hope of glory. You may lose the world, but you have Jesus. And so don't forsake Jesus to gain the world. Jesus chose to abandon fame and popularity, ultimately to remain faithful to the Father and provide life for you and me. He counted the cost. So follow His example. Don't try to just gain the crowds. Run to Jesus. Gain Jesus. Speak life when it's uncomfortable and you know you may lose everything. And that's one of the questions that we asked Asher this morning. And I told him, I said, maybe you won't have to lose your life, but maybe you'll lose friends, you'll lose family members. You can lose your job. You can lose all of these things because you're standing up for what is right and you're standing up for life. So we must speak where it is uncomfortable. And secondly, speaking truth about life ultimately can cause an offense. Verses 60 through 66. Speaking truth about life can cause offense. So kids, I'm sure you have a page full of people and whatever you think Jesus looks like right in the middle. And so what I want you to do, I don't know how you can do this. I thought, hey, and just so you know, parents, I could have them drawing pictures of people eating Jesus, but I'm not, okay? So bear with me, all right? I'm working hard on this. Draw some pictures of people walking away from Jesus. I don't know how you do it, but draw pictures of people walking away from Him. Speaking truth about life can cause offense. Verse 60, When many of His disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This hard saying, this hard saying, it's, it is hard because, man, it doesn't seem like Jesus is very accepting. doesn't seem like Jesus is very seeker sensitive. doesn't seem like Jesus knows how to really relate to people very well. Well, understand, the hard saying isn't that what Jesus is saying, His words are not intelligible or understandable. Rather, they are hard to accept. These are words that are hard to accept. Or, more explicitly, hard to tolerate. Jesus, I can't tolerate what it is that You're saying. What You're saying is highly offensive. Jesus didn't go out to be an offense. 
Rather, he went out speaking the truth about life and people took offense at what he said. There's a distinction between that. And so what, what was so difficult? James Montgomery Boyce kind of helps me outline this. What was so difficult for the disciples to see? First was the incarnation. Meaning, God coming down and becoming man. Jesus coming down in the flesh. Jesus, the Son of Man, coming down. It's hard to accept, especially in this climate, this religious political climate, that the Son of Man, who they know from the Old Testament, has all authority, all power, that when He would come down, that He would not just automatically step into a position of power and authority and rule, but that He would remain low. And that He would invite people to feast upon Him. It doesn't make sense to them that this God-man, if you will, is not being more God in this situation and taking more control and more power. Really, His humility is baffling them. That He would be low among them. That He would suffer. That He would die among them. What was difficult? His death. Jesus needed to die. God doesn't die. The Messiah doesn't die. He comes to restore the kingdom. This doesn't make sense. You can't have a king of a kingdom if the kingdom is dead. This is throwing them off. I don't understand what you're saying, Jesus. This is a very hard saying. I can't tolerate this idea. And the last one, the difficulty is this idea of predestination. Some of you just went, right? your, your core just tightened significantly and you're thinking of the quick way out. Jesus is telling the crowd, God did not draw many of you. We saw this earlier in the chapter, that it is the Father who draws His people in and that the Son does not reject those whom the Father calls a very difficult and unpleasant thing to hear. But the crowd is offended because they're Jews. They are God's chosen people. They are devoted to God in His Word. And yet Jesus is saying to them, look, God has not drawn some of you. You've been going to church every week, the synagogue. You've been reading the Bible every single week, the Old Testament. You've been praying to God every single week. You've been expecting a Messiah, you've been anticipating it, you've been looking for it, but understand, you are still blind. It is not their flesh that brings them to a saving knowledge. It is the Spirit of God. And Jesus talked about this earlier in the Gospel of John when He talked to Nicodemus about being born again. That this is something that is done by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Humans can't regenerate their own heart. Sinners can't make themselves come alive. If you see a dead person in a casket, they can't just walk out of the casket and wake themselves up from the dead. It takes a supernatural divine work of God to bring dead back to life. So Jesus is saying there's no room here for any of you to take credit for your religion, for your way of understanding the Bible, and to think that God is somehow impressed with you. Look, God has not drawn some of you. Jesus is essentially saying the Spirit hasn't even worked in many of you. Jesus said these things, and that was kind of like the line in the sand. And then there was this mass exodus. And Jesus would be left with 11 disciples plus Judas. I mean, the worst church growth strategy on the planet. Jesus has not made this complicated. He has not made this complicated. His sayings are simple to understand. It is one thing to talk to people in ways that are complicated and difficult and can cause offense, but there's also 
another way that you can talk to people in understandable ways that aren't just there to cause an offense, though they may take offense. In other words, we don't just go out beating people down, intentionally trying to throw them down and make them feel small, but we need to speak plainly, simply to people. And not just simply and plainly, but simply and plainly the good news of the Gospel, knowing that people will take offense. I had a professor in seminary who was also a pastor. He instituted a policy at his church that if seminary students brought their seminary into the church, they could possibly be under the steps of church discipline. Because what would happen is, and I'm a seminary student, so I get it. When you're in seminary, you start learning so many things, and you learn big words and lots of things. And so when you come into the local church, you're, you're there with real humans and who don't think and act like seminary students. And so seminary students would come in speaking very deep, profound, philosophical things, and it would, have, it would essentially offend normal people to the point where they would want to pull away from the church. And so he didn't want people just coming in and creating arguments and dissension and division and debate. The goal is not to be proud and boast in our ability to know hard things or hard theology, but to use that difficult theology, to use the hard sayings of Jesus. Because understand, I'm not saying these things. Jesus is saying these things. But use them and to boldly step into them knowing that they will bring life to the church. They will bring life. We need to be able to clearly and plainly speak of what God has done and not fumble all over the place. Granted, some things are hard, but we have to trust that they're good. Well, maybe you're thinking, man, I don't want to speak about predestination that's too controversial and I don't even want to get into that. And I get it. There's a lot of reason to just kind of hang there and, and just fight it out. But what if I showed you the plain and glorious nature of this doctrine? Romans 8, what is known as the Gospel chain. Romans 8, 29-30 says this, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. You can take that chain forwards and backwards. If you're glorified, then you're justified. If you're justified, then you're called. If you're called, then you're predestined. If you're predestined, then God foreknew you. We get hung up on that predestination that God chooses and calls His people. It's not a matter of of us making that choice, right? Not a matter of our own flesh, but we get hung up on that, but we miss the end of the chain. Glorification. We miss the bigger picture. it's, It's not our place to say who is or who is not predestined, but for those of us who are in Christ, we use this as an opportunity to rejoice in God. If you listen to what he said, Paul said in Romans chapter 8, it gives you no opportunity to boast in yourself. No opportunity to boast in anything except God who has called us to Himself. Sometimes we ask the wrong question. God, why don't, why don't you choose some people? Why do you only choose others? That's the wrong question. Why do you even choose us anyways? Is the question we should be asking. What is it about us that is even worthy of saving? The answer should be absolutely nothing. Jesus didn't have to be on the planet. He didn't have to be here speaking the truth, speaking life, speaking love to a fallen world. He could have just let us all die in our sins, but by the grace of God, He came. That is the question. And that's what turns that conversation into something that is glorious and good and life-giving. And at the root of hard things like predestination is love. 
Ephesians 1 tells us that explicitly. In love, God predestined us to be adopted as children. Look, there's a, there's a mystery to it. There's an element to it that we just don't understand. But we don't have to understand everything. All the depths of God. He is God. We are not. But what we do understand is that love is the motivation for what He's doing. Not hatred. And so even things like hell and eternal damnation don't come from a root of hatred in God, but come from a root of love. God's hatred of sin comes because He loves righteousness. He loves holiness. That will make you unpopular. But the goal isn't to be popular among people, but to make much of God. To make much of Him. If you walk out of here angry because I said those words, Well, my hope is that you would just see Jesus and not me. Go wrestle with the Scripture. His approval ratings, Jesus' approval ratings are plummeting. They're going down. But even still, He doesn't lose sight of the mission. Jesus knew the saying was hard, but He was focused on a greater glory. Verses 67-71. through Speaking truth about life that leads to true glory. Speaking truth about life that leads to true glory. Okay, kids, if you have any more room, this is the final thing. If you have any more room, you got more room? Okay, if you got more room, I want you to draw 11 people around Jesus. If you have, a, if you have crayons, maybe you can color them blue. Okay? And then draw one person and color them red. If you don't have crayons, 11 people with halos and one person with horns. Okay, look, you can talk to your parents about it later. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? He's now turning to the disciples, this intimate group. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, I forgot to mention this above, but in the verses prior, in the section prior, Jesus said, hey, look, are you, are you offended at this? What if I went back up into heaven? Would you be offended at that? The picture of that was this. like, What if I went back up to heaven and just scrapped this whole plan of redemption? Would it be better that I leave you in your sins and you die? Would you be offended at that? So the question should be offensive. It should be offensive. But Jesus doesn't leave them. The Mass leaves them. And understand... The disciples were more than 12. Prior to this, Jesus had sent out the 70 by twos to go call people to repentance. He had a pretty large following of disciples. And now, it has dwindled down to just 12. 11, more specifically. And so, Jesus answers this question, do you want to go away too? And what do you want to do? Peter's like, hey, look, honestly, we have nowhere to go. <laughs> and But Peter does. like, He's the bold one. He's the brash one. He's like, look, look, I will speak on behalf of everyone here. Look, we're not going anywhere. We're with you. You are the one who gives eternal life. You're the one who we believe in. You are the Holy One of God. My goodness, Peter gets it right. There is nowhere else to go. There is no one else to run to. The words of Christ are eternal life. Yes, and Jesus is the Holy One of God. Peter is essentially confessing, yes, Jesus, You are God. He's getting it right. But even in that moment, there's a little bit of a rebuke. Did I not choose You? Peter, You didn't choose Me. I chose You. 
Don't pat yourself on the back because you're with me. Don't forget that. And not only that, you're speaking on behalf of all the disciples, but you don't even know the hearts of all the disciples that are with you. There's one among you who is a devil. Peter's like, what? (laughs) And so there's only 11 of you that are truly following me. So yeah, there's, there's some rebuke for those who are walking away from Him, but for those who are with Him, you have no opportunity to sit there and boast in yourself. Oh, we're with you, Jesus. All the way, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, look, you didn't draw yourself to Me. I drew you to Me. The Father drew you to Me. And I chose you. There's a divine purpose. Even for those who are against Jesus. This is why Jesus doesn't grow worried when He's opposed. This is why He doesn't freak out. This is why He doesn't just break down and cry in the fetal position. The works of the evil one, they're not winning. Satan is not winning. But instead, Jesus will use the works of the evil one to fulfill redemption on behalf of people who are adamantly opposed to Him. They may be rejecting Him now, But after the work He provides on the cross and the resurrection, many of those who rejected Him may come to faith in Him. So Jesus is working towards the cross. You ever ask the question, why Judas? Why did Jesus? He had 12 disciples. One of them was Judas. He was the devil. (laughs) Why Him? Boyce helps me out significantly here. Six reasons why Judas. I like these. Jesus could show His perfection even in the closest proximity to Satan's tool. Even as evil dwells among the twelve, Jesus will remain perfect, remain spotless. Even as someone tries to tempt Him or tries to wreck the group. Secondly, Judas was a witness to Jesus' moral excellency. Not only are the disciples a witness, but Jesus even has a devil to be His witness. Even Satan can't argue the perfection, the moral perfection of Jesus. Third, it allowed for the uncovering of the awfulness of sin. You can be that close to Jesus, knowing Him physically in His presence, constantly hearing Him, asking Him any question you want, and still your sin has deceived your heart so much. You're so blinded. Four, it gives warning to sinners. Just because you're here in the church room, just because you claim Christian, doesn't necessarily mean you're a follower of Christ. Five, We may expect to find hypocrites among the followers of Jesus. And six, it reveals how radically different God's thoughts are from ours. Jesus is showing that He not only can come down, be incarnate, and atone for sinners, but He can do it on the enemy's turf. He can be in the world, but not of it. He can come on the devil's playground and win this game. And so, even an enemy of God is witness to Jesus' perfect life and love. Remember, Judas was loved by Jesus. Jesus didn't treat him like the stepchild. He cared for him. He openly taught the perfect Word of God to him. He shared All of the experiences with Him. Judas watched Him walk on water. And look, Judas eventually grows fond of Jesus to the point after he betrays Him, he regrets it, but that's not repentance. That's just guilt for betraying a friend. But Judas willingly chose to reject God and eternal destruction is what was meant for him. In case you have a hard time reconciling the two, Jesus' love and Judas going to hell, 
I want to share with you a biblical way to think about this. The late R.C. Sproul delivered a great sermon that was extremely helpful. It was titled, Can We Enjoy Heaven Knowing of Loved Ones in Hell? Can We Enjoy Heaven Knowing a Loved One is in Hell? So in his message, he spoke about one of his professors in seminary, Dr. Gerstner. And a student asked the question, can we enjoy heaven knowing of a loved one who is in hell? Dr. Gerstner responded, we will be so perfectly sanctified with God's holiness, we can look at our mother in hell and find reason to rejoice in the perfect justice of God being carried out. Let me say that again. We will be so perfectly sanctified with God's holiness, we can look at our mother in hell and find reason to rejoice in the perfect justice of God being carried out. This gets into the glorification. It's not that God is sick and twisted and demented, but we have no idea of really what a perfect, holy, sinless environment looks like. Our form of justice is completely skewed, which is why this side of heaven, we constantly question, what is hell and how could God do that? All of us do it. But that's because we're coming from a position of never having been glorified to moving towards glorification. And Jesus is in the opposite where He comes from perfect glorification and has now come and dwelt among sinners. It's not that Jesus doesn't love Judas, if you will. He's there. He cares for Him. But the problem is Jesus has a much grander scope and picture of the glory and the perfection and the sinlessness and the holiness of God that He can say that and not fumble over His words. We must go and speak confidently knowing that the Spirit has revealed to us the glory that is to come. We have to love our enemies just like Jesus loved Judas by speaking clearly and plainly about the Gospel to them. We have to understand if they continue to reject the Gospel, yes, we grieve and mourn their loss, but we cannot lose heart. We cannot lose heart. God has perfect justice. And one day we will be perfectly satisfied in glory. We're not going to be second guessing anything. Understand that picture in Revelation. No more tears. No more pain. No more suffering. No more sin. I mean, we really can't fathom that. The perfect justice of God will completely come over us. Shadow over us. Fill us with glory. And we will want nothing but His perfect justice. Even if it means people are burning in hell. And so we have a message to proclaim. We are not God. We don't determine who goes and who doesn't go. We don't have to get into those elements there. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And here again, to remind us, here's what is good about understanding God's justice and understanding God's foreknowledge and predestination is that God chose to, though He didn't have to, to save sinners. He chose to save us. And that is praiseworthy. That should cause us to rejoice. It should cause us to fall on our knees. It should cause us to go to the other side of the world where people may want to kill us and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. It should move us into action, not sitting still and being idle. And then when people reject Jesus, we don't have to sit there and feel guilty about it. We don't have to try to perform all the time. We don't have to try to have the best service on Sunday so more people come in. Who cares about that? What we need to care about is Christ and His glory and His mission and making disciples. He will draw people in and we must not reject them. We must receive them, but we must also go and call them to faithfulness and obedience. And so not only do we call sinners to follow Jesus. But we move on. We keep going. 
Boyce says this, the conclusion of this is that if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are truly united to Him through the miracle of the new birth, then there is no way for you to go but forward. You don't have to keep falling backwards. You don't have to grab the chains that He has taken off of you. You don't have to keep grabbing them and throwing them back on. You can move forward in your marriage. You can move forward in your parenting. You can move forward in your job. You don't have to constantly succumb to depression. You can move forward with hope and joy because Christ has you. He abides in you. You abide in Him. His death is yours. His life is yours. His glory is yours. So go out and move forward because He has you. He chose you. Coming back around to that story about Kissinger. In that same article, it says, It bothers Kissinger that his party doesn't seem to care that America's 20 and 30-somethings are wildly illusioned with the Republican Party. And it bothers him that some evangelicals' obsession with Trump may make it harder for young people to find Christ. That's a pretty terminal demographic to lose, he said, over the past few weeks. He's been talking with other Christians in the house about what it means to act without fear, including the fear of losing elections. This quote he concludes with, Our time on earth is not going to be that long compared to eternity. Look, I don't know much about this guy. Okay, He could be a total whack job, but for some reason nailed it in this article. But Kissinger was also criticized by major voices like Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, who compared his betrayal to Trump to that of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Kind of putting Trump on this pedestal as this Messiah, if you will. But here's the thing. While I don't know much about him, Anybody who says they're concerned more for people missing Jesus than about a president or a politician, I can get on board with that. So church, we must be willing to press into the discomfort of life, even if it's unpopular. Share an understandable message of the Gospel, knowing that it will offend And doing so knowing we have a greater glory ahead. So church, speak the truth about life even when it's hard.